Hmm, interesting flavors there, Pierce. It tastes like cat shit. Pierce. Pierce, what have you been making this coffee with? We were all out of cat piss. Did what I had to do. God. Pierce, why are you wearing a mic? <laughs> Usually you just service the coffee and then you leave. And what is your wheel doing here, taking up all this space? I just got it back from Mick's wheel repair shop. <laughs> it keeps and breaking on you. parlor in Kulokland. Yeah. Yeah, I just happened to have it here. Are you happy to roll it? I will roll it. Let's roll it. Yeah. Okay, roll it, baby. Roll it. By the way, could you give me that flapjack thing that's lying on the ground there that looks like a cat's turd? looks quite tasty. Here we go. The best bit. I'll use small words that you'll be sure to understand, you warthog-faced buffoon. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. You are stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Don't call me stupid. Hello, and welcome to The Best Bits, a movie podcast where we pick our favorite scenes, or sometimes do. Um, Stumbling. Stumbling. Because we're not doing that this episode. This is your co-host, Kevin, a writer of One and a Bit Films and Three and a Bit Episodes of TV. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host of Three Films Plus a Christmas Special, Will Collins. And also, my co-host of Two Films, Pierce. Two two podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Hello, everyone. And hello, Pierce. How are you getting on? Hello. Hello. It's great to see you again. Good to have you back in the pod booth. It's lovely. Smells delightful. You've you put in a new air freshener. That's just to catch it. <laughs> Stuffed in Kevin's old socks. It's woody. It kind of has a woody smell to it. <laughs> what are we going to do, Pierce? How are we how are we going to handle? Well, yeah, you said you have an idea. I have an idea. So I'm going to spin uh, spin the wheel, and let's see if a theme comes. We'll up. move Would over a small bit because this looks very rickety. You could come flying off that hinge. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just let's give it one more roll. Let's just see, okay? So we give it a little spin. Okay, now, okay. Okay, and okay, this is interesting. Here's today's topic is made for TV movies. Wow, I should have known that because that's what the title of the episode is. That is, you know, (laughs) incredible. Not to be confused with Maidley TV Moves, which is just a YouTube compilation of Richard Maidley dancing on this morning. (laughs) Full frontal (laughs) Maidley. That's better than any movie, if you ask me. It was. You know what's amazingly coincidental is that I've actually had this incredible urge to watch a number of made-for-TV movies this Incredible. past week. And I was just Googling about <laughs> made-for-TV movies this morning. So I have this kind of like, I have a, a collection of facts. Do you know what the first precursor to a made-for-TV movie was? I would guess that it's something that was in cinemas. Nope. Nope. It was actually a TV movie, right? But it was... Hang on a second. Was, You've lost me already. The precursor right. to a made-for-TV movie was actually a TV movie. This is you're the you're like, you're like the Riddler. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the precursor to made-for-TV movies, a live feature was first aired in 1944 in New York called "Talk Faster, Mister," and that is the first time we had a feature you mean film, like a recorded play. It was well, it was it was brought it was written specifically for the television and broadcast live on TV. Wow. Oh. Um, yeah, and there wasn't another one until 1957 called The Pied Piper of Hamlin, and that starred Van Johnson. And that was so the stuff that was being made were kind of like family musicals, and they were just being broadcast on television directly. That piper, it's magic. 
magic, the things he can do. <laughs> you know? What channel was putting them on? They were local, a local New York channel called WABD. This is the Dumont Television Network. New York, window on the world. But do you know, because I'm coming in, with because I just Googled this this morning, which is Incredible. fucking so weird, right? Mm-hmm. But the term made for TV movie was coined in the US in the early 1960s. And it was, as you probably know, an incentive to pull movie audiences away from going out to the cinema and keep them in front of their television screens where networks could get money off advertisements and whatnot. You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. See how camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good-tasting a cigarette can be. (laughs) And the first generally acknowledged TV movie was a film called See How They Run, which debuted on NBC October 7th, 1964. What was it about? Haven't a clue. I haven't a clue. It's, it's about people who run and maybe people who watch people run. Hi, bud. Here's the trailer. Tonight at 8, a notebook, murder and deception spark an international chase. See how they run. Jamesy, could it be Daddy's coat he's after? Watch out, he's got a gun. Get the apartment. Telephone the police. Forsyth and Santa Burger star in See How They Run tonight at 8 on Channel 48. <laughs> and the second film to be considered a television movie was Don Siegel's The Hanged Man. Now I've invested six years of my life in this project. For six years we've been building the government's case against Seeger. We broke his hold on the union by forcing an open election. Now it's just a matter of time. Seeger is finished. And it was also broadcast on NBC 1964. Hmm. So there you go. That's the very, very beginnings of... Hmm. Okay. It's funny. So there you when go. You, when you think about it, like, you know, a, a lot of the movies that we love, probably the first time we saw them was on TV rather than like in the That's cinema true, too, yeah. you know? Um, I think I've seen interviews with Scorsese talking about that, that, you know, I think he saw maybe the Red Shoes or something for the first time when he was a kid on TV, on a black and white TV, and, you know, had to wait, didn't realize, you know, just the amazing color and vibrancy of it until he saw it years later in the cinema. Oh, wow. So it was like watching Snooker on a black and white TV. Basically, yeah. I used <laughs> and I used to have, I remember with either my communion money or confirmation money, I actually splashed out and bought one of those portable TVs that had like a two inch yes. screen. It was like really small. It's like the size of my a bedroom. phone. But I used, oh, it was like, it was only two or three inches. And, uh, and I remember watching the Road Warrior on that aired on RTE. It like had an aerial and antenna. So you, sure, you it was it UHF and VHF were the two things. Yeah, you there could, you go. Yeah. They were like a, a game controller almost. Well, this one kind of was, it was chunky because it had mm. like a, a cathode ray tube, like, you know, and, um, but, oh my God, watching the Road Warrior and the small black and white TV was still, I was still sucked in, still loved it. So yeah, that's a made for TV movie in my head yeah. now. Can you remember, either of you, what the first made for TV movie was that you saw? Did you distinguish them? Because I didn't. I actually can. I think I can. Okay. There was one about a true story about a guy who did, ran a marathon across the US or ran across Canada. He he, two artificial legs. You sure it wasn't was Forrest Gump? 
No, artificial legs. And oh my God. Yeah, I remember that, but I distinctly remember, oh, this is a TV movie and it was something different. It wasn't like re- a regular movie. Because they don't understand what you're doing. So do you understand what I'm doing? In 1980, Terry Fox, a young athlete, decided to run across Canada. He called it his marathon of hope. But for a boy with only one leg, it was a marathon of courage. Starring Robert Duvall. Stand this. I love you. Christopher Makepeace. Hey, everybody under sheets and blankets. Terry Fox is here on Marathon of Hope. And Eric Fryer as Terry Fox. People say I have courage. I'm not just the only one. The story of Terry Fox, who had the heart of a champion. And half his journey was still ahead. So that's the one I remember distinctly. Can we define like what the characteristics are of a of a TV movie? Do we think is it kind of budget, well, I suppose, and and maybe a, a classically most, mostly studio classic, set, maybe classically a made for TV movie has a big star usually, mm. and it has really? a fairly low budget. And sometimes back in the day, they used to have big stars like Leave Marin, Ronald Reagan, and whatnot. And the president. They'd get the president to star on him. Yeah. They went all out. You were a great leader. You proved yourself a statesman. Well, I can change that in a hurry. In 1988 or 1990, he just, he was bored. He had to do something. So um, usually it has uh, a fairly tight, a, a slightly bigger budget than a TV show would have, but not as big as a feature film from a studio would have. And generally using existing sets or using existing locations. Mm-hmm. I have different parameters I want to put on it. Go on. Because I don't want to include streaming movies in this. Okay. I think it's a totally different art form because a lot of TV movies, they were built around being shown on TV. So they'd build in act breaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They'd have commercial breaks. And so you'd have seven, eight acts in a feature-length TV movie. But then they would recut those films later on and release them as overseas, as theatrical, yeah. yeah, theatrical features later on and add in stuff. They'd even do it from like Canadian TV movies that would get theatrical releases in the US. Like the very first video nasty mm. was a film called Visiting Hours. It starred Lee Grant and it was a Canadian made for TV movie. In this hospital, your next visit may be your last. All visitors, please leave the hospital. Ah! Dr. Len. Visiting hours so frightening you may never recover. Starring Lee Grant, William Shatner, Linda Pearl. I mean, when you were asking earlier there, Kevin, you know, what was the first TV movie that that you remember? I, like, I'm sure, you know, we wouldn't been able to really differentiate, but I'm sure growing up on RTE, Saturday afternoons, Sunday afternoons, that would have been the slot that you know a lot of these kind of TV movies would have been. Radio Television, you're watching RTE One pretty sure i saw like the elvis tv movie uh you know on a wet saturday or sunday afternoon do you know like we probably didn't watch all of it but you know they were definitely there to fill up the schedules you know i tried to track that down for this topic and i couldn't find it what is because i I don't think i've ever seen it is it good well will (laughs) 
Funny you should ask. Yeah, yeah from 1979, Elvis, directed by John Carpenter mm-hmm. in 30 days, for God's yes. sake. And this is John Carpenter post-Halloween and before The Thing. Mm. And it is a long ass. Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a second. It came out in 79. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Because he got the job on Elvis because he did the music for Halloween. They thought he's got a musical ability. He'd be good to do this. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Well, it was. And apparently, you know, he's such a music fan and a huge Elvis fan. That's what kind of convinced him really to to do the job. Um, I think ultimately, like when he's talked about it in interviews, he's not very happy with it because um, the editing and everything was taken away from him. So, okay. but still, you know, 30 days, he shot this movie. That's it's as long as Baz Luhrmann's most recent <laughs> effort. Wow. And if you've seen Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, yeah. then you will have seen a lot. Of this film, they oh, it's a full frontal nail. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know the start of Walk Hard when um, they go and find Dewey Cox. Mr. Cox, give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. <laughs> and yeah, literally, yeah. that's pretty much what happens at the start of this movie. You know, Elvis is is kind of there, sitting alone in a room, and the entire thing is told in, in flashback, just before he's about to go on stage again for the first time in years. I think, like, the thing that really works in its favour is that we don't have Tom Hanks playing Colonel Tom Parker, and we, okay. and we don't have that god-awful kind of voiceover that he does in Baz Luhrmann's thing, which just annoys the hell out of me. Um, in fact, Colonel Tom is barely in this, probably because I think he was still alive. I think probably oh, okay. he's played by Pat Single, who that name you mightn't kind of know. But you, if I told you he played Commissioner Gordon in Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah. What the hell's going on? Christ, what are you trying to do? Blow the collar? I'm in charge here, not Carl Grissom. This is Commissioner Gordon. But really, the film, it's all about kind of reestablishing Elvis's reputation after his mm-hmm. fairly pitiful death uh, less than two years previously. And there's very little mention of drugs. Actually, there's no real mention of the comeback special either, which obviously is, there's a big build up to in, in Baz Luhrmann's film. Is there any mention of his banana and peanut butter fried sandwiches? There's, there's two hours of it. No, there isn't. There's a, no, <laughs> that's all they concentrate on. It's just two hours of Elvis eating sandwiches. And of course, how is Kurt Russell in the role? Kurt Russell is fantastic, as was the actor in Baz Luhrmann's film as well. I actually did enjoy Baz Luhrmann's. If you, if you took Tom Hanks, loved yeah, Elvis. took Tom Hanks out, out of it, I thought the rest of it. I think actually it's a testimony to just how strong, you know, just that music. The music is so incredible that for yeah. all the whiz bang and, you know, it gets annoying after a while of Baz Luhrmann's style, the music just carries you through. But yeah, Kurt Russell is fantastic. Again, I think he was about 28 or something like that when he made this movie. So again, you have kind of ridiculous scenes of him in the school. It's, it's bloody Elvis there. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he might as well grow. You know, he's about two years off from playing, you know, in, in the thing. You know what I mean? He might as well have a full beard yeah, on as well yeah. while he while he's at it. But it's 1950s yeah. school, so you know they all look like they were in the 40s back then. They all look ancient. I've seen Greece. Yeah, <laughs> he did things to an audience no performer had ever done before. He electrified millions on television, on the Hollywood screen, but most of all in person. I'll sing a song for you. His name was Elvis. The singing sensation who made the girls scream and their men explode. Elvis. The way the world saw him. Come on, Elvis, give us a break. You and uh, Natalie gonna get married? 
the way he really was. I want to be able to walk around and see things, all the mobs of people, you know, just, just be free. Just be playing little old me instead of the image. Since my baby loved me The way you'll always remember him Kurt Russell is Elvis You think they care what I think? No way! They're producers, they think They're my dogs, they got no right! Shelley Winters is his mother I don't know if I can get used to all this These changes Bing Russell is Vernon Presley I want you to be happy, son Pat Hingle is Colonel Parker. You are a phenomenon. You're something, son, that comes along once in a lifetime. Nobody is ever going to forget you. Susan Hubley is Priscilla. Elvis, the motion picture that reveals the whole story of the man whose music moved the world. Elvis, the king lives on. Basically, about an hour and a half of the movie is really just about Elvis and his mom, to be honest. It's concentrating oh. on that relationship. And then the last hour is basically Elvis and Priscilla. And right. Priscilla, again, in real life was 14 when she met Elvis. And in this film, um, she's played by 28-year-old Susan Hobley is the actress's name. And the, the weirdest scene in the film has to be when Elvis rings her father. He's gone back to the States and he's asking for Priscilla to be sent to the States. Well, I just want Priscilla to come spend Christmas with us, Captain. I know she'd be okay, Elvis, but she's just a child. Captain, I know you don't want your daughter wandering off with some sex symbol, but I, I want you to know, sir, that well, I'd respect her in every way you want her to be respected. I'm sure you would. And I want to marry her someday, Captain. I mean that. Well, she, 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 she could come stay right here at Graceland. My daddy and my grandma would be right here. And I'd see to it she was put through school. And Well, she'd have the best of everything, sir. I, I promise you that. I'll think about it. Give me a little time. I really will think about it. All right. Goodbye, sir. And literally, oh next scene, she arrives. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, it's one of the few John Carpenter films I haven't seen. It's hard to get. I, I, it's hard yeah. to get. Yeah, you, you do have to go to on the, the, you know, the pirate seas, I think, to, to, okay. to find it. Um, yeah, listen, you know, in, in terms of directorial flourishes, there's not a whole lot in it. I, again, you know, to you know, shoot a near, a near three-hour movie in, in 30 days probably didn't allow much time for that. All those setups. Kurt, Kurt Russell is, you know, really watchable in it and uh, and the music's great. See, one of the things that hamstrings a lot of TV movies is that when you do a TV show, you'll build the sets and you'll accommodate the storylines to fit the existing sets. And you might have, you know, a few extra additional sets that you might build for an episode storyline. Mm-hmm. But for TV movies, what I've noticed is that they shoot a lot on location. So they get out into the street. There's a lot of exterior shots and using existing locations. So that takes a, that takes a lot of um, skill to be able to shoot in places that aren't built to be filmed in. Mm-hmm. And that can let down some TV shows, but also enhance or them in it other can, ways. It, it can also, yeah, add a lot of value. Yeah, like one that I watched and it was Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Night Stalker, yeah. Oh, that was on my list. I didn't get to tell me. What is this? What is the Night Stalker? Okay, let me pitch it to you in just two lines. The movie of the week. The X-Files in the hard-boiled style of Raymond Chandler, set in Las Vegas of the 1970s. <laughs> 
May I introduce myself? My name is Kolshak of the Daily Chronicle. Kolshak reports the bizarre, the supernatural, the unexplainable. You again in another crazy story. This nut thinks he is a vampire. You know what I call that? Irresponsible yellow journalism. He has killed four, maybe five women. I saw that so-called super killer wipe up the streets with your so-called police force. They don't want any help from amateur bloodhounds like you. I've been a reporter for 22 years. I've been a police officer for 30. Well, then why don't you retire? Each man in the field is issued one of these and uh, one of these. Are you suggesting that we pound one of these into Scorzini's chest? No, no, into his heart. Darren McGavin. The Night Stalker. Written by Richard Madison. The amazing Richard Madison, who, mm. again, just to give a bit of info about him in case people aren't aware, he was the author of I Am Legend, the novel, back in 1954, which was turned into lots of films, including The Omega Man and I, and I Am Legend. And he also wrote some of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone, um, including Nightmare at 20,000 Feet where William Shatner realizes he's never getting his bag back from Dublin airport. And <laughs> well, John Lithgow, if you watch the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And he also adapted his own short story, Jewel into the screenplay that was directed by Steven Spielberg. So yeah, right. uh, we are in very, very good hands here and he has enormous fun with this world. Yeah. The movie was such a huge success that it spawned a sequel called the night strangler, which I haven't seen. And mm-hmm. then a series called Jack, the night stalker. And yeah, yeah as you said, it, it, it was very influential on the X-Files, but there's a series of murders that are taking place in Las Vegas. And one of the things I did love about this was seeing what Las Vegas looked like back yes. in the very early 70s. Yep. And our lead character, Kolchak, who is an investigative reporter, yep. a bit of a gumshoe, who's narrating the story, believes that the people who have been slain- The serial been, killer that's on the loose- yeah. yeah, the people that have been slain have been bled dry, and he believes that a vampire is running amok. Chapter 1. This is the story behind one of the greatest manhunts in history. Maybe you read about it, or rather what they let you read about it, probably is some minor item buried somewhere on a back page. However, what happened in that city between May 16th and May 28th of this year was so incredible that to this day the facts have been suppressed in a massive effort to save certain political careers from disaster and law enforcement officials from embarrassment. This will be the last time I will ever discuss these events with anyone. So when you have finished this bizarre account, judge for yourself its believability, and then try to tell yourself, wherever you may be, it couldn't happen here. It's got that lovely sort of rat-a-tat-tat dialogue where... Well, what's the, the, the actor who plays Kolchak? It's a guy called Darren McCavan. So he just... I, he, uh, he had a long career apparently on stage and screen, but you might know him as Adam Sandler's father in Billy Madison. That's really one of the few. Do I? Few. Mm. <laughs> That's the best I can do. Yeah. He has a lot of fun with the dialogue. He's, yeah, he's never fantastic. short. Never yeah. short of a, of a quick-witted rep- repost. Yeah, and he's got that laconic kind of voiceover too, kind of describing things going on, you know. Sunday, May 16th. At approximately 2.30 a.m., Cheryl Hughes was standing at the intersection of Casino Center and Fremont Streets waiting for a girlfriend to give her a lift home. Cheryl Hughes was 23, 
Five feet, five and one half inches tall, 118 pounds, blonde hair, light brown eyes, swing shift change girl at the Gold Dust Saloon. Cheryl Hughes, tired and hungry, but just mad enough to walk the eight blocks to her small frame house off the corner of Ninth and Bridger. Cheryl Hughes, en route to her doom. It, it kind of it predates um, the, the Long Goodbye, the Elliot Gould movie, but it's kind of got a little bit of that in it. Um, it's not on that level, I should no, say. No, it's not on that, it's, on that level. It's a TV movie, yeah. but you'll enjoy it, I think, if you check it out. And it's available on YouTube. Yeah. You sold it to me on all counts. I, it was on my list. Like, if there is a weakness in it, it's probably when we do see the serial killer and he has the appearance of, like, Pete Doherty on a three-day bender <laughs> in the early noughties. Okay, let's run it again, baby. This time, this time, can you say flip in instead of fucking, because I have to let that out. Let's roll it. Second question. <laughs> <laughs> but TV series also is kind of interesting. I was just sort of looking, reading up about it, and it, it had David Chase as the story editor. And it also, so David Chase, creator of The Sopranos, of course, and also he must have been gave, very young on that. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, uh, and it also gave the very first professional writing credit to Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Really? Um, yeah, and even in the episode titles from that the one series that that they made, you could kind of see how sort of the the monster of the week format was starting to wear pretty thin. They were kind of running out ideas. You can see it in the titles. So basically it goes from such titles as The Ripper, The Zombie, The Vampire, <laughs> The Werewolf, to The Energy Eater, to The Demon in Lace, to John Carney's The Rafters. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> uh... No, it's very good. It's very good. I have to watch it. It's really good. And it's on, um, you can find it on YouTube. The X-Files came about as a result of my love as a kid of two movies on television called Colt Jack the Night Stalker, which were fantastic and scary and had left a really big impression on me. You were talking about films. You, you just kind of brought mm. me on to there. You're, you, Kevin, earlier in you were saying about films that I remember consciously being aware of being a TV movie when I was young. I have one, one, I have one big one that I want to mention. So go on. Okay, well, I have one. The one that stands out to me was Stephen King's It. Is that the one you wanted to mention? Do you know I've never watched that? I just remember the video boxes and anytime I... Yeah. So this is where I become slightly prejudicial against TV movies. But anytime I saw the trailers to It, I always thought that looks really cheap. And I never mm. went for it. So I've never actually seen the original miniseries It. I wanted to mention that though because yeah. Go on. would you classify a lot of those two-parters that they did with the Stephen King adaptations for TV as TV movies? Yeah, because I think they were originally intended to be broadcast on television. That's where they were being produced. Yeah, but they're two-parters. Right? So would you count that as a TV movie? Because one that I remember... Is that a difference watching. between like a TV movie and a miniseries? Is that what you mean? Well, they used to show them over two nights. It's like yeah. the original Salem's Lot that Toby Hooper directed. I remember that being cut into a single movie that was uh, you could rent it. That In my head, I would classify it as a, as a TV movie because sometimes they would do that. 
with the TV movies back in the 60s and 70s, they actually would split it up to a, a movie of the week. Come back for night two. Yeah, they would come back. So uh, at the, in the early days, that was a, a ploy that the networks uh, utilized. So yeah, and they would recut it then as a feature film when they would try to sell it off to foreign territory. Because I remember seeing when it was re-shown on RTE in the late 80s, Salem's Lot, and mm. it was shown over two nights. And then I can remember a few years later, we were having uh, a sleepover at a friend's house and we rented the film. And it was sort of, it had cut it down to, um, I guess, one big bloody affair, like the Kill Bill idea of combining the two into one big movie. Have either of you seen Salem's Lot, the Toby Hooper? Oh, yeah, it's a couple of times. Nope. I have have you not seen it, Pierce? Nope. Oh, oh wow. It is a great, scary time. Do you believe a thing can be inherently evil? Marston House, for instance. How do you like that old house? Needs work, but we have time. Open the window. He commands it. <laughs> There are moments in it that are still great, like when the little kid, one of the first victims, he appears at the bedroom window of one of the Let one of the. Yeah, that scene genuinely scared the living bejesus out of me. Versus a scene very late on, where uh, a climactic scene in the kitchen where uh, the main bald guy, the bad, Nosferatu, the main Nosferatu like creature shows up. It's so poorly shot. It, it's not the scene itself. It's serious. Oh, it's so poor. But it was. You know, if, I think. Are you talking about when they bashed the parents' heads together? Yeah, I think it looks. Oh, awful. scared the shit out of me. Back, priest. What would you give for this miserable boy? What do you ask? What would you give to reprieve him this night to save him for another night? What do you want? The master wants you. Throw away your cross, face the master, your faith against his faith. Could you do that? Is your faith enough? Then do it. And trust him to let the boy go? I think, yeah, watch it, watch it now and kind of go, oh, yeah, maybe we could make that. Oh, I'm going to, uh, to go to bat for that as of all the ones I've watched for this. That has got to be in the top three. No question. Oh, okay. 
there you go it's worth a watch okay. I would say it's, it's definitely worth a watch I, I'm giving it a thumbs up as well yeah talking about scares mm-hmm. right last night <laughs> it was I knew it was on the list and one of you said it's actually on YouTube and I went oh I've got to watch this it was The Woman in Black mm-hmm. from 1989 see this is where British we're very show. different people I'm like, where Pierce recommended I'm like, it the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre did a vampire thing <laughs> and it is genuinely terrifying and you guys are getting the shit the woman about the woman in, in black. black. It is creeped the bejesus out of me. Pierce, yeah. is that on your it list? It is on my list. I talk I to me about the woman in black. Woman Sell in black. it to the listeners. Okay, so it was broadcast on ITV. Um, it was on Christmas Eve, nineteen eighty nine. It's based upon Susan Hill's Christmas Eve. They broadcast oh, on Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve at half nine. Uh, in the evening, um, oh my god, which is quite quite amazing. <laughs> um, so it's based on Susan Hill's uh, atmospheric. Be a lot better if they. Sorry, yeah, it would be a lot better if they broadcast at a half night in the morning <laughs> as the kids. <laughs> as the kids, <laughs> yeah, you got your toys. Bloody. Now watch this. Um, <laughs> sorry, so it, it's directed by uh, Herbert Wise, who did I Claudius, and it's got a script by Nigel Neal, who's best known mm. for his uh, TV adaptations of 1984 and Quartermass in the Pit. Or if you are me, he is best known for having written Halloween three and taking his name off it, <laughs> and that too. Here's a rough summary of the story. It's set in 1925. It deals with a London solicitor who's been sent to spend a couple of days recovering the papers of the late Mrs. Alice Drablow at her isolated coastal home known as Eel Marsh House. While there, he starts to have some spooky encounters, in particular with a ghoulish figure of a woman dressed in black, which eventually leads him to uncovering the tragic history of this family, its cursed connection to the area, and ultimately will result in him bringing that curse home and resulting in one of the most incredibly downbeat endings that you can possibly mm-hmm. imagine. And again, watching this on Christmas Eve is just kind wow. of like, what? Um, it's a fantastically executed ghost story. It looks terrific. The production values are really really good and um, it follows a long line of christmas ghost stories that probably had started with jonathan miller's whistle and i come to you and uh, through the 70s with all the mr james adaptations which have like subsequently you, you know they've started doing them again with mark gatus on uh, bbc4 and stuff in the last couple mm. of years and um, in comparison to the daniel radcliffe kind of version in 2012 which has a jump scare every you know three minutes this really takes its time it takes its time. It has a long build-up. And I think it's all the better for it. You know, it's building that dread that kind of creeps up in you. You know something's going to happen, but you just don't know when it's going to happen. And it's got a properly malevolent ghost in it, right? It's not Casper the Friendly Ghost here. It's out for revenge, and it's going to get it. And like I said, again, this jump scare that we've kind of mentioned here, um, which uses the ad break as the most brilliant cliffhanger, Again, that's one of the most memorable things. And the thing that people probably talk about the most when they talk about this version of The Woman in Black. Um, Again, like I said, it was broadcast Christmas Eve 1989 at 9.30 on ITV. The TV Times listing suggested that viewers, in quotes, tuck the children up in bed to wait for Santa's visit and enjoy a polished late night quiver and quake. Which sounds like a metaphor for something else. But it was soundly beaten in the ratings for that Christmas Eve by the film Legal Eagles on BBC One, which got 9 million viewers. Great film. From the director of Ghostbusters, an unlawfully funny tale about the legal process, starring a lawyer who tap dances. I'd recommend Legal Eagles, actually, if you want to watch something... 
yeah. I'd recommend that. Um, but listen, its reputation has continued to grow. Uh, 2020 Network DVD put out um, a fantastic Blu-ray of it. It looks beautiful. It's got a great commentary track with um, horror expert Kim Newman and the League of Gentlemen's Mark Gatiss. So, um, and there is a copy of it on YouTube too. So you've no excuse not to gather the family around the TV this Christmas Eve and collectively shit your pants with all the quality street that you have eaten and watch The Woman in Black. Highly, highly recommend. God, aren't she very easily scared? I'm with Pierce on this one because I genuinely started off watching this going, ah, this is going to be a little bit quaint and a little bit naff, particularly in the early scenes where we actually see the woman black very early on in this film. And I went, she's basically just That's standing. A ghost. She's just it's standing a ghost, in the background. Right. Which is kind of like, yeah, it's you, you. when you see it, first of all, you go, ah, come on, we all know what that is. But the film got under my skin because it didn't really waste too much time actually getting into the fact that the, the solicitor guy kind of faces up to the fact that, oh, there's a ghost here. And there's a there's a mystery element to the plot. And I love that un, uh, unpeeling of that mystery and that scare in the bedroom. I did not know it was coming. I, I was expecting one thing and that happened. And I seriously crapped the... Pe- no, I didn't crap, but I genuinely just went, Jesus Christ, it gave me a great fright. Yeah. Great fright. You made a small civic coffee in your pants, basically. Nah, teeny tiny little Pierce, tiny. Pierce brand coffee. Yeah. This is my reaction of that moment, that jump scare. <clears throat> <laughs> We're all entitled to our opinion, Kevin. We're all entitled to our own opinion. You can do nothing against the master. We are. And it doesn't mean Watch Salem's wrong. Lot. I'll tell you if one I thing. If I pick one. Back, go on, back, go on. Go on. Keep, keep it moving, keep it moving. Tell me one thing. Back, priest. All right, Christmas Day. I didn't see that. Right. Maybe nostalgia is a big factor in that one and you had to have been there at the time. I just watched it last night. But <laughs> for the first time. Stop, holy man. It's my episode. Will, will you let me talk? Will you let Go me on. fucking finish the fucking story? I can tell you in 1992 on Halloween night, I was watching one thing that did scare the shit out of me. And it was the very controversial Ghost Watch. <gasps> on Saturday night, we'll be visiting the most haunted house in Britain. But will the ghosts be there? Can you take it? Ghost Watch, a Screen One special for Halloween, Saturday at 9.25 on One. Yes, I watched it for the first time as well, Kevin, this past week. Did it scare you, Will? Gave me chills. Boom. I, it gave Did me. That scare ch- you, Will? Kevin, you, you, listen. Here, I'm now on your side. So stop. Still, <laughs> okay, I'm okay. now trying to bolster your case. Right, Don't knock me right. down. <sighs> okay, right. It's it's very of its time, right? Because it has all of the mise en scene that you would see with uh, an early Michael Parkinson led TV show. I don't know what to do. Should we go back upstairs and? But it was very convincing, and I can imagine if you watch this. Back in 1992 and 1993, I can see how loads of people were totally convinced. I did get really spooked, spooked with this one as well. Children, come on. No, Sarah, Sarah, stay where you are, please. Sarah, stay there, please. Don't go upstairs. Why? Because we hear that Suzanne's got out of bed, but she's not yet stay appeared. Stay I don't know she's why. Not, she's not appeared on the landing. Suzanne, where, where is she? It, 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 it could be a piece of its usual misdirection. I just, trust me, Sarah. Stay. Suzanne must still be in the bedroom. But where? There's a blind camera range, right in the corner of the room. Can we cut to the hall camera? No, sorry. Sorry, the landing camera. 
No, the, the landing on the door. The other landing. That's it. And zoom in. Can we pan? Can we pan left? And down. Stephen Volk, the writer of it, he pitched it as a series. It was going to be a six-part series that was going to follow an investigative reporter that was going around to different haunts throughout the UK. And episode six was going to be like a live event, like the movie. And his agent came back to him and said, this was in 1988, so I'll tell you how many years it was in development, came back to him and said, can you do it as a feature instead? I think we'll get more luck that way. And he said, I can, but it'll have to be episode six. Once they had made that change, everything started to fall into place. They decided to populate it with actual known TV presenters and figures that would convince people that it was genuinely happening. Mike White, who was the husband of Sarah Green, read the script when she was offered it. And he said, this is fantastic. Can I have a role in it? He jumped on board. Michael Parkinson came on board. Craig Charles was on there. There was nothing in the actual show itself that told you that this was fiction and it was scripted. The BBC insisted that at the end it had writing credits so that people could sort of glean from that that this was not um, a live event but actually scripted performance they had a warning at the front of the episode and pre-publicity where if you read the tv guide or what have you it would tell you that this was a dramatic work but of course back then you caught things after they'd started it a lot of times and there was no way to go on your phone and google and go like the fuck is ghost watch is this real or is it not so a lot of people including myself were totally duped and I remember calling up my cousins and saying, did you just watch that? Is it real? Do you think it's real? And they're like, I don't think it's real. And I remember sitting there, I was on my own in the house, waiting for the news to come on, to find out what had happened to Sarah Green. Was she alive? Mm-hmm. Like, they're, they're going to have to tell us what happened. And if they don't talk about it, then maybe it wasn't real. But that was the, the space you were living in, where yeah. it's like, you had no way to, to basically figure out, was this... Um, a real event or not? It was, our, it, was, it, it was our generation's War of the Worlds broadcast, you know, the Orson Welles thing. That's yeah. essentially... They banned it after that because there were so many complaints. Mm. So the BBC would not uh, discuss it. Apparently it was pulled from being up for a BAFTA as well. But um, it's become quite a, a cult classic over the last few years. So a lot of Americans have sort of heard mm. about this and it's percolated down and it's gotten releases. I think you can watch it on Shudder at the moment. But The one thing that pulled me fantastic. out of the film... It is fantastic. The one thing that pulled me out of the film is that the scariest epicenter of the kind of the, the, the terror of this house is this little cubby hole that's underneath the stairs and uh-huh. they've boarded it up. But they call the cubby hole the glory hole. And so whenever they talk about the glory <laughs> hole, I can't tell but kind of go, <laughs> there's a different connotation in 2022. What's a glory hole? I don't know, Kevin. Watch the so- Always Sunny in Pod Philadelphia. Bot. A glory hole, also known as a devil's window, is a way to make a living. I think that's that, that, that's for the that's for the extra bits podcast. I think we'll have we'll explain it yeah. to Kevin. Best bits after that. And uh, what I loved about that Ghost Watch is that how they uh, Parky and the whole the TV show edifice kind of is cynical. As in, like, Parky's kind of cynical about the whole ghost thing. Like, yeah, right, everyone's kind of rolling their eyes. And they have this expert, a doctor, sitting opposite him, and she's trying to prove ghosts. So there's a, a duel going on between the two of them subtly throughout the show. And it pays off in the end. It, there's a, a lot of little twists in that story. Oh, it's very good. It's very, it very good. It was very clever because 
they were leaving you to guess whether what you were seeing was actually happening. Like there'd be stuff happening in the background and they'd be asking people to call in yeah. if you'd seen anything. And Michael Parkinson wouldn't have noticed it. And you'd yeah. be watching it going like, there was definitely something behind them. I definitely saw something. Yes. And when they would roll back the tape, when I saw it first time, I was like going, there's fucking someone standing in the in the corner. And then when Parky pulled it back, they obviously used a different shot where that person wasn't in like the corner. And it was and this so- was before Blair Witch and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. if you were to ring that number, they then would have told you that what you were watching is a dramatic work of fiction. Really? But yeah, it was very well done. It's great. I should say that this tape is completely undoctored. Mm. There's no uh, edit on it whatsoever. Uh, we should also warn... Uh, our viewers of a nervous disposition that the things on this tape that they might find a little bit distressing. Mm. Let's hear it. I can't finish the sentence. But I can't finish Bagger's <laughs> bag. <laughs> because fucking Kevin won't let me finish a fucking sentence. <laughs> Imagine if Sarah Jessica Bagger's bag. Bizarre. And chilling too. Will we throw another title out there? Another form of horror different type of horror this time. Kathy, come home. That was very, very sad. Yeah. That was a really sad... Sad and, and just horrific, but uh, essential. And again, I would mm. put it in my, yeah, top, certainly top three TV movies of all time. Can you tell people a little bit about what it... Yeah, we were, like it's from 1966, directed by Ken Loach and written by Jeremy Sanford. And it was part of the BBC's The Wednesday Play strand of TV films. Which over six seasons, between 64 and 70, made 182 productions, of which only 79 survived. Because obviously the BBC had a habit of using tape and stuff like that and recording. Wait, over. so 180 like uh, 182 telemovies. Yeah, yeah. Production. Imagine, like I think I, I mentioned to you before, Kevin. Like, you know, what an incredible way to to learn your craft, basically to have that kind of opportunity to do that. So 12 million people watched it. Um, broadcast on the 16th of November 1966. The story is of Kathy, which played brilliantly by Carol White. Well, I was a bit fed up, you know. There didn't seem to be much there for me. You know how these little towns are. One coffee bar. It was closed on a Sunday. Didn't even tell them I was going. I sent them a card when I got down there. That house over there. Yeah, that one with the broken steps. That's where I went for a room. And the fella kept touching me. Where did I get a room in the end? Oh, yeah, down there. Mantua Street, three pounds a week. And her journey from falling in love, getting married, having kids, and then after her husband gets injured at work, how the system starts to pick apart her life, going from different types of accommodation to uh, emergency accommodation. And ultimately, she is forced into homelessness and has her children forcibly taken away from her at Liverpool Street Station in one of the most brutal and harrowing endings to any story you will ever see. And when you think of the title and you see that scene and the title is Kathy Come Home. God, it's devastating. But that film was so impressive because I was not expecting it to play like a montage. So Mm. it's giving you snippets continually of major life events. Like the man that she falls in love with, his mother puts her husband into, or is it her father? Puts her father into care Mm. in order to free up a room in the house so that they can move in. Mm. And just the devastation of that and the the stress is put on the family and sort of you, you go from their wistful sort of romance 
to having a kid, to the mother dying, to getting evicted. So fast. And this is all happening. So fast. So fast. But it's spanning years. Yeah. It feels incredibly fresh and modern. And again, this is whatever, you know, 50, 56 years later, you know. And so naturalistic. All the performances. So naturalistic. Hang on a second. Is, this docu- is this a documentary? Is so much of it is so real. I've read an interview. Again, there's like a mix of like pro and non-pro actors. There's improv. I've read an interview with Ray Brooks, who played Kathy's husband, Reg, in the film. He did an interview with The Guardian, and he said, and I'm quoting here, he said, Ken Loach was always fascinated with improvisation, and that was a totally new way of working for me. At the top of the page, it would say, Kathy and Reg walk in park and talk about their future. So we'd know the salient points, but the conversation would be all improvised. They said it was like playing jazz. We're going along in these hearses, you see, to what they call this unusual supper party. And the bloke who was going in ahead of him, the chandelier falls down on him, you see, and he gets strangled with all these diamonds. And then this big woman, who grind mm. about 40 foot high. Oh, that was through the radioactive dust, was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Well, she sticks around down through this window, you see, and she gets hold of this mean little <laughs> piece that he's been doing it with, and they've been jitterbugging away. Oh, it was an old film. Oh, yes, quite old. But unbeknownst to this, uh, this big 40-foot girl, you see, there's been a bit of swapping around. And it's not her husband at all anymore. Anyway, as a folks jumping up, his mask slips. He slips right down. Who do you think it was? Duke of Edinburgh. It's the sky. Um, he also said that when Cathy and Reg are looking for a place, we turn up in Camden Town and answer a real flat-to-let adverts. He said, I would ring the bell and we would say we were looking for a room. The woman would take one look at Carol's bump, which was a pillow up her coat, and say, oh, no, we, we can't have children. Then we'd go back and say we we're making a film and can we use the footage if we give them a tenor? Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's, it is that kind of, you don't know what you're watching. It does feel so much like a, a, a documentary at times, you know. What caught me off guard as well is when Irish characters sort of pop up yeah. and you realise how much they were also suffering at that time. And yeah. You know, they're in the women's home and they're in these yeah. different you hear, you hear them in the and, voiceovers and those interviews that are taking place. I was in the council house, so I was... And then my husband, he buggered off and I got a scheme there that if you're an abandoned woman, they turn you out. And so then I came here. They say it's to stop men leaving their wives, but it didn't work in my case, did it? And the film is what it shows up sort of the callousness of petty bureaucrats. And there's a scene where Kathy is told by one of them, he says, don't be a fathead when your time comes. He says, let us take them away without making any fuss. You've had your chance. We're not interested in you now. It's the kids we're worried about. Yes. When he says that. And you're like, yeah, we're not interested Jesus. in you anymore. Yeah. And funnily enough, the, the self-appointed moral guardian, Mary Whitehouse, at the time, gave out about the film because of the unfair way it depicted authority, which tells you all you need to know about what side of her shit sandwich is buttered on, quite frankly. Christ. But it's it's very entertaining because an awful lot of these socially real and socially conscious films can feel a little bit didactic and dour. But this one, you just have immediate empathy because it begins with, with two hopeful lovebirds. Yeah. And you just watch the degradation of her life. And it's true, no fault of her own. It's just bad luck after after bad system. And you see, you see the it's a tragedy. Yeah, the the points the points at which they are pushed into each uh, each increasingly desperate circumstance. Yeah, you know, it's just like 
he's out of work. He's like, well, she's she's pregnant. She can't. That's the money they have. That's this is the cost of their rent. They can't. They have to downsize and they downsize and they downsize and they just push the system. Just crushes them. It, it feels also- very modern still. Yeah, it does. I mean, two of Britain's yeah. biggest homeless charities, Crisis and Shelter, were formed sort of soon after the broadcast. Um, I well, think that was a coincidence for Shelter. I think Shelter was going to happen anyway. But it, you know, again, it, it just the timing was was kind of amazing. I'd love to see some more of those Wednesday films mm. then. Uh, Loach as well has said in interviews that despite the splash that the film made at the time, ultimately he feels they were just patted on the head and told what a wonderful job they did by the government. But none of the main issues that they were addressing in the film were taken on board. And as Tony Garnett, who's the film's producer, has said, when the film was repeated two years later, there were more people homeless in London than there was when it was first broadcast. Jesus. So really, you know, how much how much of a difference possibly did it did it make? I've seen like more recent interviews with Ken Loach when he talking about it and just, you know, people asking him, have things changed, have things gotten better? And he basically kind of says, look, there is more of a safety net maybe now for people, but there's also more and more people using, being forced to use that safety net. Successful decades, housing has been seen as a market. We uh, welcome the free market. Every politician is tested on whether he's pro-business or not. If he's not pro-business, God help him. He'll be scorned by every interviewer on BBC and ITV and in the press if he's not pro-business. But it is that ideology which has reduced housing to huge tower blocks, bought as investments by foreign investors, and we stand empty. We've committed to one ideology and not to the other one, which is that housing is responsibility for us all to provide houses and provide homes for everyone to live in. But I think it goes beyond that. To make housing work, there has to be a plan. Housing has to be planned alongside work, alongside the social infrastructure of, of health and schools. It, now it has to be environmentally sustainable. And that's what we need to create. And you can't do that if you leave it to the market. The market builds what will make the most money. It won't build what we need. And that's what we need. We need planned estates, as Nye Bevan planned them in uh, the aftermath of the war, where as he said, only the best is good enough for the working class. And my God, we need that again. Fuck yeah. You know, can we really say things are much better now when, you know, you have families having to choose between eating and heating? He says, at least back then, actually, they would be able to get food. But now, for him, it's all about Thatcher in 79, basically getting elected. And that was the kind of defining change of governmental values that moved away from the public good and instead towards private greed and a punitive system of government strivers versus skivers, basically. Can I bring up one that started life as a TV movie and it was, it's a little bit more lighthearted and it is behind the candelabra, Steven Soderbergh's film. So good. That's a TV movie. Mm -hmm. Bye Rose. Have a good time. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of the show, Mr. Shonenshaft. Liberace. Wow. This is my friend Scott Thorson. His first time in Las Vegas. You are incredible out there. Well, this must be fate. I have a great idea. Why don't you come work for me? As what? I need a companion, a bodyguard, someone I can talk to. Say yes, Scott. Mr. Thorson. He's expecting you. I call this palatial kitsch. Wow. Your happiness means everything to me, Scott. 
You make me feel so young. Such a loving man. Is this the kind of life you want for yourself? My eyes are open, Rose. I promise. I want to be everything to you, Scott. Father, brother, lover, best friend. I'll do whatever you want. Jack, I want to talk to you about doing some surgery on Scott. I want you to make Scott look like this. Oh, I see. I think maybe this was a mistake. I can't live like this. Everybody looks down on me. Stop taking those pills. You're always in a mood. This is not exactly the life that I had planned for myself. Please don't be unhappy. I can't stand it when you have a face like that. Especially after the money I paid for it. I have not seen that. Oh, it is so much fun. Michael Douglas plays Liberace, the audacious and gauche piano virtuoso. And it's told from the, the whole story is told from the point of view of Matt Damon, someone who's going to be his new boyfriend. It is very- Liberace was gay? <laughs> no, yeah. no, 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 no. That's for another um, Best Bits extra <laughs> podcast for me. <laughs> Maybe we can combine the glory holes. But it is a, an incredible story of excess and talent and abuse. And makeup and, effects. And makeup effects. But, but my favourite, there's an actual scene I love in this. It is about face transformation. Yep. Rob, Lowe Rob Lowe plays... Liberace's cosmetic surgeon. <laughs> I've seen that clip actually. This, this clip is amazing. Rob Lowe looks like <laughs> Michael Jackson on a bad day where he can't move his eyes, he can't move his face. And Liberace comes out and presents. He says, can you do some work on my friend, my, my uh, Matt Damon's character? And he says, I want him to look like this. And he spins around a portrait of himself. And Rob Lowe looks over with that face that's pulled so tight. It's inc- it's incredible. And says, yes, I think we can do it. And at the end of the scene, he takes a drink from a glass of champagne and he can't close his mouth. He just swallows like with his lips still open. It's do you know what that happens at the moment? No, yeah. with uh, a lot of girls getting, I think they're oh, no. lip flips <gasps> and they can't drink from a straw. After that, oh, stop, oh stop put, doing cosmetic yeah. surgery to yourselves. But you people. said you he look looked beautiful. like Michael Jackson on a bad day. I thought that Michael Jackson looked quite good when he was doing bad. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Wasn't this, the story I heard is that Liberace had to sleep with his eyes open because he couldn't actually close them. Right. That's in the film. Yeah. That's in the film. Yeah. He's there. Matt Damon's, true, Matt Damon's looking over at him and <laughs> Liberace's snoring, but his eyes are open. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's true. <laughs> Did you ever see Recount? The oh, one that he did with Kevin Spacey years ago. That was on the the George Bush Al Gore mm. hanging chads affair when they were basically deciding who was going to be the next president. That was very good. Another one of those HBO TV movies. Yeah. You see, this in America they used to have ABC movies of the week, and then they were pumping out a lot of sort of true life movies mm. yeah. that you wouldn't really see them get theatrical releases. But if there was some sort of news story that was quite grabby they would just turn it into a quick movie of the week. Yeah. Brian's Song is one of those movies. That that was one I watched. This is a story about two men. They competed for the same job. One was white, the other black. (laughs) One liked to talk a lot. You said, "Uh uh-huh. The other was shy as a Mm three-year-old. Rookies got to stick together. Our story is about how they came to know each other. Fight each other. I'm going to whip you, Sayers. But you've got to be at your best. And help each other. I think I, I owe you a beer. I owe you a lot more than that. Did you watch it? I did, yeah, yeah. It was, um, it's, it's of its time. 
Okay. Put it that way. James James Can, yeah. isn't it? James Can stars in that. Right? Well, it's yeah, 1971 ABC movie of the week. It's the true life story of Brian Piccolo, played by James Can, who was a Chicago Bears football player, stricken with terminal cancer, told through his friendship with his teammate Gail Sayers, who's played by Billy D. Williams. Oh, Lando. And again, you kind of get their yeah, they they were actually the very first interracial roommates in the history of the NFL. Which is kind of like, what? Okay. In the 70s, uh, they had to segregate them. Yeah. So this is like, you know, again, you know, mid 60s, they turned pro in, you know, 65 oh, right. and so, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Listen, you know, it, it, it's it, James Kahn is, is terrific. Look, he chews up the scenery. Billy D. Williams is terrific. Again, it's lovely to see him again, I suppose, outside of the couple of movies that I, you know, I've, that I've seen him and that we've all seen him in. And to be reminded that, you know, he's, he's a really good actor. But it, yeah, it's a, it's a really sentimental kind of sports movie that probably, you know, the Americans would just absolutely lap up. And, you know, this basic Billy Williams gets an injury and James Caan's character helps him through it. And then James Caan gets cancer. So Billy D. Williams is by his side. And I, I don't know. He, the, the character that James Caan plays is a self-described racist and bigot. And he does use the N-word quite a lot in this. What and, word's that? Yeah, and, and Billy D. <laughs> 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 um, and you know Billy D. Williams' character is kind of seen as you know just letting it brush off him and yeah it's okay like it, it, at the end of it it kind of turns James Caan's character into you know the bravery that he faced the cancer is probably the thing that he should be remembered for not his racism or bigotry you know because that was just the way it was back then you know but it's okay and there's a lot of great American football kind of stuff in it and footage I think which they look like the shot on location at games and stuff so if you're into that it's definitely worth trying to trying to catch again I, I don't think it's on YouTube but I think you have to go to the to the pirate seas to try and find that one there's another big one that we haven't mentioned so far mm. that I'm surprised hasn't come up there's two right. that, I, that, that are high in my list yep but go on is one of them threads that is the top of my list yes. oh okay yeah yeah Threads is a powerful, movie. powerful film. The United States government has been forced, reluctantly, to take action to safeguard what it believes are legitimate Western interests in the Middle East. We are confident that the Soviet Union will take note of our resolve and will desist from its present perilous course of action. There is growing evidence overnight from scientists and observers in many countries that there have been two nuclear explosions in the Middle East. In response to today's news of the outbreak of hostilities between vessels of the United States and Soviet navies, the Ministry of Defense has announced it's sending more troops to Europe to reinforce the British commitment to NATO. This time, they are playing with, at best, the destruction of life as we know it, and at worst, total annihilation. You cannot win a nuclear war! now come to make everything ready for you and your family in case an air attack happens. When you hear the attack warning, you and your family must take cover at once. The most widespread danger is fallout. A quiet good. Attack warning. Attack warning. Is it for real? Attack warning for bloody real. Is it? You can't just do a face like that. I've got your titty I, again, another one I just watched for the first time this week. Um, Tell people what it's about. So, Threads came out in 1984-85, written by uh, Barry Hines. The guy who wrote Kaz? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. And, uh, directed Have you by seen Nick- it, Pierce? No, I haven't. 
haven't seen. Oh, it. wow. It's oh, one wow. for you to watch. Definitely. Yeah. So it's a documentary style account of a nuclear holocaust when a, a nuclear bomb is launched and hits Sheffield. And it's about the effect that it has on the working class of the city. The film actually spans a couple of decades from the point of view of one woman particularly. And it is it's harrowing, horrific, harrowing, so brutally, so, so, so. Very believable as well. It doesn't Christ. feel like overly dramatized. It, you just see how society collapses very quickly. And so effectively created. We are shown, let's say, when the blast actually happens, we would just have these stark cut to a monitor screen with just titles on it saying 1000 megaton bomb erupts over uh, over Sheffield. These are the things that happen. And it's societal breakdown. We're short on food. So we're just little bullet points, but enough to carry on to, you know, the, the dramatic side. You, it really gets under your skin because yeah. it just feels like fucking hell. I hope that never happens. And it did have that effect on people that watched yeah. it where it completely turned the tide against nuclear energy when when did you say it was released when, uh, 1984 84. America the Americans had their own version of it called The Day After directed by Nicholas Meyer yeah came out the year before one five nine situation and you might pay particular note to the nuclear submarines off the east and west coast having already captured nato advanced positions hey any of you guys hear anything about an alert i really don't think either side wants to be the first to use a nuclear device it's not a question of who but where east germany sealed off the borders to west berlin which ronald reagan watched and apparently yeah it got under his skin enough that he changed the whole, you know, uh, protocol for dealing with nuclear weapons. Uh, that had a big cast. Steve Guttenberg, Jason Robards was the lead in it, uh, John Lithgow. There's a kind of a, a, an array of actors you know would go on to do big things. But again, it was a similar type story where we saw the follow from the point of view of Kansas. Which is the better film? No question. Threads is okay. so I've not effective. seen the day after. It's so effective, so powerful. It showed the power that these films actually had back in the day because these were being seen by a vast number of people millions and millions of people and it was so terrifying that it would affect their opinion one millisecond takes you beyond imagining beyond tomorrow and into the day after definitely don't want anything with nuclear attached to it like you know landing on your doorstep after watching these films well threads is well worth checking out still harrowing to this day brilliantly yeah, made a brilliant very film. much like a Ken Loach film if mm. Ken Loach made a nuclear fallout movie it's got an awful lot of similarities I think with Kathy Come Home definitely okay. directed by Mick Jackson who went on to do things like Volcano LA Story The Bodyguard Clean Slate he did a, he had a big Hollywood career after this so yeah definitely it's high Volcano it's, Back at the top of my list. It's at the top of my I list. I think, you know, like at the start when we were Me trying too. to define what, you know, what a TV movie is, maybe we can add to the definition of that. Like there's a tendency for them to have more kind of social commentary than maybe a lot of the films that would have been in the theaters. Yeah, it's time. a rip from the headlines type yeah. movies. Yeah. There was one you recommended to me, Pierce, that is more of a short film, but it's one that I was unaware of until you pointed it out. And it's Elephant. Oh, listen. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the one. That's the one on top of my list here. I haven't seen Alan it. Alan Clark's Elephant. 
It was made by BBC Northern Ireland in 1988, and it's just under 40 minutes, about 38 minutes long. Uh, and again, directed okay. by the legendary Alan Clark. It's produced by Danny Boyle. Okay. Yeah. Explain how Danny Boyle was involved. Yeah. Well, at the time he was he, he was coming out of like a theatre background and he really wanted to get into TV and film. And the only way he could, he managed to get a job with the BBC as a producer in Belfast because at that time nobody else wanted that job. They didn't want to go over. So Boyle asked Clark then to come over to Belfast and they together started to develop uh, the idea for Elephant. And there's a brilliant commentary between Boyle and Mark Commode on the BBC. FI box set of Alan Clark's work, which I highly recommend. And tell us something about how the, the format of Elephant worked out, because obviously what you have is at the beginning um, a, a series of uh, very deliberately repetitious killings in which you see somebody walking, you see a victim, you see a very fast assassination, then you have a, a shot of the victim afterwards. And this repeats itself in a way which is very disorientating originally for the audience. Tell us how this idea came about. I mean, you don't have a script. You appear to have a, a graph. Yeah, we didn't have a script. We... What happened is I was working in, I'd been, I'd already been working for about 18 months in Northern Ireland and I lived, I still lived in London and I used to fly backward and forward to Belfast. I had lots of friends in Belfast and what it was based on was this uh, unease, this difference between the way the public in London and the, U, the UK without Northern Ireland perceived the troubles at that point, which was the mid 80s. And basically what was happening is that there was very little interest, other than in enormous events like Inner Skilling, which happened at the time. There was very little interest in what I could see was going on day to day in Northern Ireland, which was a relentless series of civilian deaths, executions, basically, like you see. Sure. And the Northern Ireland press office at the BBC issued this list, which uh, became really the script of the film, which was a description broken down into categories of who died each year. And it was the, the, the way that when the Troubles first began, it was a, there was a lot of army, OUC, UDR personnel killed. Mm -hmm. And then basically as they were withdrawn and um, there were less deaths there amongst those kind of what you would call targets, yeah. really. But the civilian deaths continued at an alarming rate. And we it drew me to thinking about... Um, uh, why people didn't see, didn't know about these deaths. And so we decided to make a film that tried to show that really and tried to show in a way that wasn't, in a traditional drama, wasn't, wasn't moralistic. You know, it didn't have a conclusion, it didn't have any redemption, it didn't have the normal techniques of drama to find a different way of describing it outside the bounds of drama. The intention was not to show the film in Northern Ireland because everybody was aware People lived with this day in, day out. They were very conscious of it. Unfortunately, it went out in Northern Ireland as well as the rest of the UK and um, it upset people there because it, they, don't, they didn't need to see this kind of film. It was, it was sure. more for the, the mainland and the way that, the, that our relationship with the press and what the press had chosen to show us of Northern Ireland had actually kind of immunised us to what was actually going on there. So what Clark and Boyle came up with here were a series of scenarios, there's 18 in total, where we are forced to bear witness to kind of brutal killings with absolutely no context given. They just, again, you in a lot of them, you're just following along with a person, obviously walking along with them for a long time, and then there's just a very quick, brutal killing, and that's it. It's like one after the other. 18 of them, one after another. As Boyle says himself in that commentary, he says there's no sense of redemption, no kinds of moralizing or even a conclusion that we might associate with a piece of drama. You learn nothing about the victims 
or the killers. It's just a relentless repetition of killings that provokes eventually an emotional reaction out of us as we watch. We get this kind of gut reaction of, for God's sake, make these killings stop. And yet they go on and on. It's on YouTube. Um, it's the most. It's a. Be- it's a beautiful looking movie, right? Not in a Terence. It's all Malick, Steadicam. Yeah, not. A, it's not in a Terence Malick magic era kind of way, but it's the use of the Steadicam by John Ward, who had worked with Kubrick as a Steadicam operator on Full Metal Jacket, uh, and so that Steadicam in com- combination with a wide-angle lens, as we yeah, follow like the these Revenant. characters around, who are either going to kill or be killed. These characters, that camera just kind of pulls you along, whether you want to or not. Sometimes a very, very long takes of characters just walking and again you have that symbolism you know in the north of walking marching um and it's often through kind of empty industrial spaces where like the lights are on but there's nobody there working which again is possibly a commentary on on thatcher's britain too and it's just stunning was it shot in northern ireland yes it was it was shot in belfast which is unusual because generally most of the time if they're shooting a thing about northern ireland you'll shoot in leeds or somewhere like that you know but no alan clark was very particular about that he wanted to shoot in belfast which you know would bring a certain amount of problems but you know the film is all the better for it so the reaction to the film at the time is fascinating. And again, on that BFI box set, one of the extras is a clip from a show called Open Air, which was a kind of a points of view mailbag type of program where the next morning viewers could kind of ring in and ask the program makers whatever question they had. So after the day of transmission, Danny Boyle is in the studio and he's answering phone calls, most of which are from Belfast and are angry with the. We're going to take a call now from... Uh... Eleanor Launchbury, who's uh, phoning us from Belfast. Uh, Your comment, please, uh, Eleanor. Well, I'd like to begin by saying that the programme made me extremely angry. Fifteen minutes into the programme, I reached for the telephone. What I would like to ask is, if you insist on portraying these murders uh, in in the way that you have, why not go the whole hog and and be factual about it? Um, It was quite noticeable. All we saw were the assassins and the victims. Now, so many of these tragic murders have occurred. uh, People have, men have been shot in front of their wives and children. Shopkeepers have been shot in the shop full of customers. Uh, If you're going to do this, show it as it is, not some stylized version of it. Yes, because uh, taking on this point, there was no response from neighbours. Nobody ran out. There was no kind of assistance from from, uh, uh, anyone at all. Could you answer her point? Yes. Well, when, when we started researching the project, uh, Eleanor, uh, we did consider portraying them in a much more documentary fashion. I mean, we rejected that for a number of reasons. I mean, I think, personally, it's unacceptable to show the killings in the exact way that they do occur. Some of the details which we looked at are so distressing, I was unable, really, to consider showing them at all, as you mentioned, particularly children, who are often witnesses to the deaths of their fathers, particularly. So we also wanted to try and achieve some kind of stylization in the piece to prevent it being a documentary. Consequently, people, in order to try and capture this idea that these men never seem to be caught running away, they never seem, you never hear that in the way that you do, for instance, on a, a bank robbery in England, there's always witnesses. You never seem to get that impression, and we wanted to create that through a, a stylization, really, through a distilling of the act down to its... Very simple, terrible... So in stylizing, you want to make it less offensive? 
If anything, yeah. Yes, so but but Eleanor, that that didn't work for you, I take it. Oh, not at all. No, I was deeply offended and and uh, very very angry by it. There was there's nothing to indicate where it was happening. It could have been anywhere. There was nothing which said it was Belfast. There was nothing that it said who was killing who and for what reason. It was just men running around with guns, yes, emptying them into a, a helpless victim. Completely out of context. That's right. We wanted to avoid the context, really, because it becomes so complicated. And to be honest with you, Eleanor, as soon as we do contextualise it, certain people begin to justify it from one angle and certain people from another angle. And we wanted to avoid that and leave that really for other works about Ireland that wanted to deal with that. You see, however you stylize it, uh, uh, Eleanor, because uh, I'll just butt in, if I may, Sammy Miller, also from Belfast. Uh, Sammy was paralysed in a similar attack to the one shown last night. Uh, in 1981, this happened to him. And he thought the play was in extremely bad taste and it made him relive the day and the event and the injury and the whole, the whole horror of it. Well, uh, obviously, I mean, uh, that's terrible. And mm. all I can say about that really is that I think people who work in this kind of field, w- we have to use sometimes, and with great regret often, that the, the pain that some people suffer as our raw material. I think... All people who are working in in dramatic films do that, I'm afraid. And we did take as many steps as we could to avoid any incident directly reflecting uh, one that actually happened. It's amazing. That's going my watch list, Mm -hmm. Pierce. No question about it. Your favourite TV movie is Threads? Yes, yes. And yours is Cathy Come Home? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it will be Cathy Come Home, yeah. Do you want to know what mine is? Can I give you two honourable mentions? Unfortunately, we don't have time, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do one honourable mention I'll bring it down well I wanted to I actually one honourable mention was I said I'd bring it back to Ireland a little bit something that was produced in Ireland and might be stretching the parameters a little bit but I have to say Roddy Doyle's The Family from the early 90s it was. Uh, it was. Wasn't that a TV that series? Was a series, wasn't it? It was a mini. I thought it was a mini series, wasn't it? Well, series. okay. Yeah. Cut that. Cut that. Cut that. Right. I think. I think the Sopranos is the best TV no. film ever. <laughs> My one honorable mention. The Warrior. I thought it was like four. I thought it was four episodes. Four episodes. Anyway, my one honourable mention, Kevin, my one honourable mention is uh, uh, a film I watched uh, recently as well about the discovery of the AIDS epidemic. It's called And the Bands Played On. Okay, what we've got in Los Angeles, San Francisco and New York is a number of gay men who've been hit with a variety of opportunistic infections and really that's all we know. I've asked Don to join us because for the last three years he's been tracking hepatitis B virus in gay men and before that worked on the Ebola fever epidemic in Africa. Yeah, thanks for joining us. What we've got to do is hit the phones and spread out, contact the health departments in all the major metropolitan areas as usual so they can do a hospital-to-hospital search for cases. Basic shoe leather epidemiology. That's it. We've got to talk to the patients, talk to the doctors who may have treated those patients and friends, relatives. No question too stupid or too personal. Sexual relationships, too. Lifestyle stuff. Um, household chemical cleaning diet. Could be a bad batch of street drugs. Pets. Yeah, maybe they all get the same kind of kitty litter. <laughs> it came out in the early 90s, about 93. Stars Matthew Modine, Alan Alda. There's big guest that title stars. That is familiar, but I don't know it. Richard Gere's in it, Steve Martin's in it. And it's all about, as I said, the discovery of the AIDS epidemic and about the political infighting of the scientific community. Is this the same year as Philadelphia? Actually, it might have been the same year. Yeah, it mm. might have been the same year. So um, it's actually it's actually really well made, uh, directed by Roger Spottiswood. Director of Terror Train. 
and director of one of the Bond movies. I think he made the yes. Tomorrow Never Dies and written by Aaron Shulman. It's actually really well shot. That was a good insight there, Pierce, into our frame of reference for both of us. <laughs> good. good to know. I watched it. I thought it was a, actually really well made film and an interesting point of view on like what was kind of sicking about it was how egos got in the way of the efforts to try and identify and conquer the AIDS epidemic in for almost a decade. And it was like uh, egos. It's incalculable, the loss that we had in terms of music, mm-hmm. fashion, writing, filmmaking. God knows what we would have been if all those people weren't wiped out because a lot of them were on the, the bleeding edge of creativity and, and artistry. Liberace, we lost Liberace. He died of AIDS. Are you sure he was gay? I'm not. I need to. <laughs> uh, at the end of it, there's a kind of a montage. It's kind of uh, very much of its time where it was kind of very self-congratulatory. But you see all the faces of all people who have died from AIDS. And it's, it oh. is actually quite potent where you see things like Freddie Mercury and, mm. you know, Liberace, you know, all these faces you go, crikey. And when did yeah. you say this was made, Will? Nin- 93. Denim Elliott. Even seeing Denim Elliott from Indiana Jones just gave me a real shock. I was going oh no, like all these people wiped out over the course of a decade. Thousands and thousands of people. Leave it to me to get some disease nobody ever heard of. Kaposi's sarcoma. Even my doctor had to look it up. But anyway, yeah, it's it's worth a watch. Uh, It's of its time, but it's well made, really well performed Mm -hmm. and an interesting story. And in America, there's controversy at the moment because the drugs that they have at the moment that can essentially wipe out AIDS, prevent it being spread from person to person, they're charging exorbitant amounts of money for it. And uh, it's the same with insulin. Hmm. You know, America is, you treating healthcare as a, a capitalistic endeavor to make money is so immoral. Yeah. And that's where a good movie of the week could come in and highlight this topic if we were back in the day when people were watching movies like they were, like movies of the week because Like the had- Langoliers. I mean, oh, totally- yeah. <laughs> Changed <laughs> airport travel for me. I have an important business meeting in Boston this morning at nine o'clock. Would you please be quiet? You're scaring the little girl. Scaring the little girl? Scaring the little girl? Lady, we're diverting to some tin pot airport in the middle of nowhere. I've got better things to think about than scaring the little girl. One observation I have from watching so many of these. Good. Observations are what we want. We need a point of view. What's our observation? Is that the UK television output far outshone the stuff that came out of America, the best of the American? No question about it. The quality of the output that came was absolutely phenomenal. If we look at the things we've spoken about yep. from Threads, Cathy uh, Come Home, The Woman in Black, all of those. Ghostwatch. Like, inc- yeah. Ghostwatch. And we haven't I even talked about like Mike Lee and his TV work and stuff yeah. like that, you know. And- just phenomenal yeah. quality of work. So that's just an observation I have. Yeah. I just think. I think it's a, it's a possibly because, like you know, the, certainly in the 1970s, the British film industry was pretty much dead, apart from you know, Confessions of a Window Cleaner and those kind of movies. When in what decade? Well, in the 70s, and then also into the 80s. Well, it was wiped out by Thatcher, wasn't it? There was more decline under under Thatcher again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people forget that the UK film industry was just churning out fare that could compete with Hollywood. There mm. was so much indigenous filmmaking going on and the profits were going back into funding studios and you know with the Ealing comedies and Hammer and and there was just so much getting made do you remember there used to be the oh was it the Children's Film Fund or whatever they used to Children's have Film Foundation yeah Film Foundation I remember one that I was convinced was a TV movie until I looked up for this called The Glitter Ball 
but apparently it was out in cinemas in 1977. But uh, I used, I remember catching that on TV as a kid as well and thought, hmm. that looks like a TV movie to me. It's pretty shite. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, talking about shite, we mentioned before as well the Trilogy of Terror one as well, which I watched. I haven't seen that. Which um, I did not know that that was a, a TV. Yeah, you said you just saw it as a, a, a movie. Yeah, sometime. I thought it was a yeah. theatrically released movie. Yeah. Which, um, again, it is on YouTube. You can find it. It's three short stories. Basically, it's an anthology film. It's all Richard Matson again, all of his stories. Do I make you nervous, Doctor? Karen Black, a major star, creates a television first. There's a golden chain wrapped around it to keep the spirit from making the doll come to life. Face to face to face with the unbearable unknown trilogy of terror. The first two segments are pretty ropey. The third one is kind of memorable because there is this doll that comes alive. Karen Black is in all three stories. She plays all the kind of the main characters in all three. Well, the one that we have glanced at, but we haven't delved too deeply into, is probably the greatest TV movie of all time. Uh, It launched one of the greatest filmmakers of all time into a, a stratospheric film career. And it was written by Richard Madison, starred Dennis Weaver. It was shot in 13 days for like 400 grand. It was released within a month. So from the moment that they started shooting to when it was out there on TV screens, it then got recut and was released theatrically in Europe. But it's uh, Steven Spielberg's Jewel. An amazing pick. An amazing Whatever pick. happened yeah, to I, him. Yeah. Whatever happened to him. You watched that film today and it is as gripping Which I did as- do. Did you watch it today? I oh did. I watched it today just to re-familiarize myself with it. And it is gorgeous to behold. Mm. Like just the colors alone. It goes back to what I was saying about one of the things I like about TV movies is that they shoot an awful lot on location. Spielberg was shooting on the same road, putting multiple cameras, getting the truck to turn around and drive back the other way and cutting it so that it looked like it was one long stretch of road. When you think back to the massive cameras that they had to use back then, and he's like squeezing that into a car so he can get all these interesting angles of of Dennis Weaver while he's driving. It's incredible what they were able to pull off in 13 days, and he'd gone three days over. So it was meant to be shot in 10 days. But... It's essentially just a car chase film where Dennis Weaver is harassed by a faceless, nameless, mysterious truck driver who gets into a duel with him. And it grabs you, holds your attention. And it's one of my favorite Steven Spielberg films. It's up there, yeah. What age is he when he made that? Was he 23, 24? 12. 12? 12? (laughs) He was 24. My God. Like yeah. a kid. Yeah. Was it was 23, 24. Was... Incredible. And it stands up against all of his mm. recent output. I I would put it ahead of like some of his big blockbusters that he's had out in recent years, like Warhorse and Ready Player One and all those mm-hmm. sort of like huge budgeted films. And just even the, the appearance and look of the, the chasing truck is such a, like a character. You know what I mean? Mm. They had the a look of it. It's like an extension of, you know, the car's universe. I can imagine it being in... in Pixar's car is just turning up. You know, it just it almost has a face that you're looking at, you know? Yeah. Again, it's another TV movie that was inspired by a real life event. Really? So, um, yeah. What was the real life event? Somebody was harassed by a truck while they were driving along the road. Oh wow. 
<laughs> Tell me more. Richard Madison Tell then wrote it as um, uh, he wrote it as a novella in Playboy magazine. Mm. It was that that he then adapted. But uh, yeah, it's a fantastic film. And although we shouldn't be saying this, but it is available on YouTube to watch in high definition if you are so inclined. And I would absolutely recommend it. I'm wow. so shocked that it's still available. Wow. Because when I last watched it years ago, it was on YouTube and I went, oh my God, this amazing film is on there and it looks great. It It is so kinetic. It has got great energy. The editing is as top quality in this film, but it's also the, the the dynamic shots, as you already mentioned, that he manages to capture. Really, it's such an impressive film. Just full. It's, it's just yeah. ballsy. Really ballsy. But think about that, like 13 days to shoot that. They drove 2,000 miles in the course of shooting the film. and. It was on TV screens within four weeks. Incredible. And uh, Dennis Weaver as well. We got to say, what a performance by him. You know, he's, he's carrying the movie really with his expression. He's an interesting you know? protagonist because he's very weak and insipid character who's getting pushed around. And I guess it is about him standing up to this faceless foe, but a fantastic film. I went back to my old ranking of Spielberg films and it's, it's number five for me. It's up there. It's like in the top five. I was sitting around the office one day looking through scripts, continuing to write, trying to get my feature film ideas off the ground, trying to get somebody to hire me. And my assistant, Nona Tyson, found Duel. She said, I read this article, this short story by Richard Matheson in Playboy magazine. I said, what do you think when you Playboy magazine, Nona? Are you kidding? She said, no, no, no. But she said, I love the fiction. And she said, I want you to read the short story. I think this is right up your alley. And I read the short story and I said, wow, this is terrifying. This is like a Hitchcock movie. It's like Psycho with the Birds, only it's on wheels. A truck chasing a salesman through the desert. And she said, well, I also found out that Richard Matheson is writing a screenplay that they're going to do as a movie of the week and it's being produced by George Eckstein. She gave me all this information. So I called up George Eckstein, who didn't know me from Adam, knew of me because they used to call me Scheinberg's Folly because I was the young kid he had hired, I think was the youngest person ever signed under a term contract in Universal's history. And I wasn't really that highly regarded. I was this abstract kind of young person that only loved lenses and dolly shots and didn't know anything about acting. That's at least the reputation I had then. And I called George Eckstein up and I said, I've read this short story, haven't read the script yet, I'd love to talk to you about this. And so he invited me over to his office and he asked for me to bring the work I was proudest of. So you could see an example of my most recent work. So I brought over the rough cut of Columbo, which hadn't even aired yet, but I brought the rough cut over. And I left him with the rough cut after we had his conversation. He saw the cut. Then he called me back to his office and he said, okay, give me your ideas and how you'd like to make this into a movie. And he gave me the script of Duel. And I read the script and I came back, had another meeting with George, gave him all my ideas. And he said, well, I'll get back to you. And a day went by, two days went by. I didn't hear a thing. On the third day, I got a call from George who said, okay, I'd like you to direct this. I, I was like the greatest phone call. It was the second greatest phone call I ever had. The first thing when Scheinberg called me and got me out of college to, to, to you know, be a director. And the second one was when Eckstein called me and said, I'd like you to direct Duel. And that's sort of how it all began. If we were to go back to what we usually do on our episodes where we pick our favorite scenes, I would highlight the phone booth scene when he is uh, trying to make a desperate call home. Yeah, and then, I love it. Absolutely yeah. love it, Kevin. Brilliant, brilliant film. Great scene. Well, we've recommended enough TV movies there for people to check out. People are going to be square eyes watching all of these <laughs> TV films. <laughs> but we don't have to spin the wheel, Will, because we know what the next episode is. It's Movies Within Movies, Kevin. That's what we've got next time. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. I've already started the research, which is exciting. 
Do you know what I'm thinking though, Will? I think we can throw another topic into that because that one sounds a little thin. So I'm going to spin the wheel here. You're going to mix it up. What are you doing? And here, stop the em. second topic <laughs> that what? you're going to tackle is best breaking the fourth wall it's, scene. It's movies within oh. movies within movies. The next episode, we'll do movies within movies and breaking the fourth wall. How's that? Well, in actual fact, I think I can tie those together as my fact. I can't wait to watch that magic happen and listen to it, lads. <laughs> You're welcome to join us if you bring the coffees. Lads, I have to go because I'm about to shit myself. Okay. That, that coffee has gone right through me. <laughs> it really does, doesn't it? It really this does. flapjack is so tasty. Like, it's got mm. a lovely aftertaste. That's all I'll say. Pierce, yeah. where can people find you? People can find me on Pierce's writing on the Twitter. On the Twitter, you burst. That's where I am. For all, for all your coffee needs and, and whatever else. Are you on OnlyFans? <laughs> well, you know, don't pretend that you don't know. <laughs> Who does the wheel? Where can we find him? Uh, he's in Kulakland. That's Mix. Mix Wheel Repair and Tattoo Parlor. Excellent. Yeah, just, right. that, just tell him Pierce sent you. Well, there you Brilliant go. Pierce. Man, you've given me some films to watch, Pierce. I've uh, My watch list has gotten longer. Thank you so much. Yep. I've really enjoyed it's this topic. Not a problem. There you go. What I love about doing this show, Kevin. Oh, Jesus. I can see Kevin shrug when I kept that No, speaking. because I'm trying to wrap up. I, I want to me out. What I love about doing this show okay. is that with these topics, I end up watching films that I would never otherwise mm. ever, ever watch. Or watch films I would never watch. And I've watched some gems. That's why you watch Grabbers for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the only reason I watch. Still haven't watched Grabbers. Still, oh, I've never seen it. Oh, dear. <laughs> Kevin, wrap us up, please. If you like this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Rate, review us, all that good stuff. Tell your friends about us. Um, it really helps the podcast grow and other people to discover us. And if you want to hear more of us waffling on, we're over on Patreon, putting out bonus podcasts all the time. They're well worth checking out. Yeah, Pierce is on OnlyFans. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Pierce. 18 euro a month is pretty high tier, Pierce. <laughs> Hey by the inch. <laughs> See ya. The Best Bits Podcast is produced by Will and Kevin. All audio clips and music heard in this episode is the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a Patreon member where you'll receive bonus shows where we talk about recent releases and what we're up to. And you'll receive access to our Discord chat room where we hang out with our listeners. Search the Best Bits podcast on Patreon or click on the link in the show notes. Stop, holy man! And here is a clip from the lad's latest mini bits bonus show, the full episode plus 100 more, are available on their Patreon. The best bits for Will and Kevin. No, the best bits for Kevin and Willem. For the films and the, the TV and the latest films. Something, something, something. something. Um, don't forget that you owe us three euro. Okay. <laughs> you can't you throw what? <laughs> oh, my God. I, I did a whole Irish theme. The best bits for Kevin and Willem. Talking TV and the Okay, right. I'm going to find the fucking thing because it's going to be the music to start the episode. I don't think I've heard this. You have. Well, maybe you haven't. I don't think I have heard this. I do. I suspect that what you do is you just put the laugh and emoji thing and think I'll listen to that some other time. Fuck it, that'll do. Because it's bound to be funny in his eyes. So I'll just tell him what he wants to hear. I actually only laugh the emoji when I've actually listened to it. I should have taken the hint that nobody was responding to the podbot one. 
Like nobody was giving me any reaction to it. And oh. I thought they hadn't listened to it yet. And then of yeah. course I was delighted with that and people hated it. <laughs> it's not it was it was it wasn't easy on the ears in a, in the sense that it was just her monotone voice, so there was no up and down. That's the thing. Yeah, I know. I tried my best. You're a bug and I'm a feature. Pray to this mantis or I'll eat you. And if you don't know my name, here's an update to teach you. I'm, I'm, I'm Hogwarts and I'm the future. An AI podcasting computer. The number one zero one zero zero one one producer. Yeah, that's exactly it's good. Digital. So. Don't forget, no, you owe us three euro. I come off the stage. Not, I've not, I've, I've not heard this. I swear to God, I'm going to send it to you right now, and you can get a genuine reaction. I'll actually listen to it. So I'm, I have my WhatsApp open. The best is Kevin Willem about the telly and the latest film. Coming straight to the dynamic duo. Don't forget, no, you owe us three euro. Come off the stage, old That's genuinely my first time hearing that. <laughs> I just could easily have just scrubbed it from my memory. That's the other thing that could have happened. How do you operate? I I I generally just go on impulses. So if I need to toilet, I just toilet, and does I that doesn't necessarily mean I need to be Squat, in the proximity like a of a toilet. Yeah, that's what I'm saying you just go. I just nappy it, Kevin. I just man. I just adult nappy it. Oh, we've got loads to talk about. Um, I've watched a load of things. So have I. But I think I should get one thing off my chest straight away because I think the discourse out there sometimes can feel really artificial to me and it can feel like people will films to be worse than they are in order to have something to point at and ridicule and sort of create content about should I start the timer? Is this, have we just started? Start the timer because I'm rare okay. to go. I saw Madam Web. Right. I honestly, guys, know nothing. All I all I know is I saw a poster. Oh, very recently, it went. There's a Madam Web film, and I'm. What is this? So it's a Spider Verse adjacent Marvel movie. Yeah, it's it's one of these Sony things where they did Venom and they're doing Craven the Hunter, okay. and it's sort of an offshoot of. The Spider-Man movies, but I don't right. know what universe they're in because they're trying to blend them all together. So, is this the Tobey Maguire Spider-Verse? To me, it feels like it's in that space. Mm. Anyway, I thought I'm done with superhero movies. I'm just over them. I watched Captain Marvel not re- long ago, and I thought it was just tedious. Are you it's so lifeless. The Marvels, not Captain Marvel. Is that what Marvels? Well, yeah. she's in it. Captain Marvel. Captain yeah. Marvel two. It was just sort of like, it was another one of those films that felt like Ant-Man in that everything was chemical and synthetic and fake and Mm -hmm. airless. And, you know, you just have sound stage after sound stage. And I just feel profoundly depressed watching those films. I feel like there's nothing organic happening in these from the lines of dialogue to the hairstyles to the costumes to the sets to the music to everything just feels it's artificial wafer thin just wafery artificially no sustenance no satisfaction you know protein in it whatsoever you feel like oh wow I just I just put something down my throat and I'm still hungry it feels like eating plastic okay on the whole it's just drifted so far away from what Iron Man was that I just don't care about them yet I found The Flash really fun because it was it felt like a Bill and Ted type movie at times. It was off the wall bonkers and I don't really particularly give a shit about special effects. Whether they're good or bad, you know, I can buy into it because of the ideas behind it or the concepts behind it. So I wasn't like 
revolted by the, the special effects of the Flash. I just thought, you know, it's mm. funny to see babies falling out of windows and being put into microwaves and things like that. So I went into Madam Web, not really giving a fuck about the genre, but I wanted to see it for the sake of having an opinion on it. And the trailer was awful. It had that terrible line reading in it from the Dakota Johnson where she's, she's shitting out exposition. And I think people had the film's cards marked at that stage. And uh, the film itself, to me, played like a Final Destination action thriller. And I thought it was really pleasant. It didn't bother me in the slightest. I didn't have any of the issues that everybody else has. It was uh, a reluctant hero with no superpowers whatsoever other than having premonitions, trying to keep three teenage girls alive against somebody who's like the evil version of Spider-Man who wants to murder them. And they just played it out in a very cinematic way where it felt like a Sam Raimi type Spider-Man. It looked as good as that. It was all real locations. For me, it felt like a lovely throwback to the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. And I don't get why everybody loads the film. I thought it was just fun. Oh, wow. Uh, all I've yeah. seen is the negative discourse. And you're the first voice. I believe, you know, I haven't listened to the episode because I haven't watched the film yet. I know the Cinemile uh, had differing views. Oh, fuck. Me and Kathy, we were the, so far the only people that I know who don't think the film is dire, but Dave almost had a hernia on that episode. It was very <laughs> enjoyable listen to listening to it. <laughs> Oh, I have to listen to it. He was, I'm really curious. I'm really he was curious. disgusted because Caddy was pushing back and I thought it was very, very funny. And then when I saw it, I was like, do you know what? I am actually on the side of Caddy here. This is actually grand. Right. This is actually grand. So I, <laughs> <laughs> but you That's know so what? Funny. It didn't feel like a superhero movie. So I liked it for that reason. Oh, it's okay. I'm just going to look up some of the, the credits. And I like Dakota um, Johnson's performance as well. She was playing this sort of curmudgeonly antisocial character. And to put that type of person in the role of having to be a protector is actually really fun for me. And it's a role that you don't see many female characters inhabiting. That's more like a Harrison Ford type role. And um, I enjoyed it. So I don't get why everyone is shitting their britches over it. It's grand. Thank you.